Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Folks, before we start this episode, I just want to give a wee bit of context. So about a year ago, we did an episode on an album called Diskin by the band The Drum. The Drum, also known as China Drum, then managed to get their hands on that episode via the internet and they reached out to us afterwards. We had their singer, Adam, uh, appear on a Christmas episode last year, but their drummer at the time, Jan, he also reached out to us and sent us over some really interesting little details about the record and about, you know, the recording of it and and what the songs were about and some really cool anecdotes and stuff as well. So, after a wee bit of back and forth, we managed to, all three of us, get together to sit down and just chat about Diskin, to chat about the drum and all the things that happened to that band at that time. So we really hope that you enjoy this episode. It's not something we've done before, um, and it's something that happens very rarely when artists actually come and talk to us about a record that we've done. It does happen, um, but you know when it does, it's really nice. So for the first time, we're actually able to get someone from one of those bands to come on and talk about their experience of creating that record. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey folks, it's the Unsung Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Chris. That's Chris again, but we're back to COVID times <laughs> um, because we're doing this and remotely again for the second time in as many yeah, weeks. Yeah, we're back totally to COVID bizarre. times in more than one sense as well because everybody's down with it. Wow. I've totally missed it. <laughs> um, Mark, I, I heard a third voice There's in the room. third voice in the room. <laughs> Who have we got this time? You want to introduce yourself, sir? Hiya, my name is Jan Alkema from the band The Drum. There we go, there we go. So uh, the one thing we associate with Jan is being in the world's hardest to Google band. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly easier when they were China drum and then Jan came and was like, guys, this is going to be far too easy to find a decade in the future, so let's do something about that. (laughs) Do you know why they were called China drum? 
Uh, no, please tell us. So China drum. I didn't know this. So I always thought China drum, China drum, where do you get the name from? It's from a Scania brake system, the trucks. They had oh, ceramic, yeah, ceramic brake system. Like oh, uh, it's called yeah. a China drum. Uh-huh. And um, okay, totally yeah, sense. Adam and Bill are obsessed with all things engines. They're petrol heads. That's the singer and the uh, guitarist. Dave, the bass uh, player, is, uh, is not as obsessive. But yeah, that's where the name comes from, China Drum. Wow. That's crazy. I think um, drum brakes as well are really notoriously difficult to fix too when they, when they break. So, um, so this is a new direction for us. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's like the, the part of me that nobody knows about coming out, about cars and shit like that. Um, so um, if you're a regular listener to the pod, there's a very good chance you may have caught an episode uh, about the album Diskin by the band The Drum. was the later incarnation of China Drum, the British alt-rock, alt-punk, Brit-rock, you know, hard to, slightly hard to kind of pin down, especially because of this third album. Um, we did an episode on that, really happy about the chance to do that, and I think, as I said during that episode, when we first conceived of this podcast, that was literally one of my main motivations, was this thing that had got its, its uh, claws into me years ago, and I, I just really wanted a chance to pontificate about it. Um, but before we go in and talk to Jan and get his insight on that record, Mark, is there any admin, or do we just need to kind of shake people down? Just shake them down, I think. Just stick right. them up in the back alley. <laughs> Jan, maybe you can maybe you can do this for us totally unrehearsed. Can you give like <laughs> three compelling reasons that people should stop listening for free and maybe chuck just two pounds a month, four pounds a month, anything a month, are we? Well, because I can see the background of where you're both living. They, <laughs> they need a couple of quid. Um there's, Shame. There's, there's there's a haircut. And a beard trim could be in order. <laughs> Thankfully, you can't see what I look like. <laughs> but no, basically, it's it's uh, something like this is genuinely interesting. You'd be hard pushed to find something that is as as fun as this because the diversity of topics is ridiculous. A um, couple of quid is what they need from all of the listeners, and then next thing you know global can we just keep using that every single time when he asks for money chris we'll just take that exact sample and just just reuse it <laughs> it's the quote in the back of the book because it really it? is thanks very much for that Thank you. okay no so uh first things first uh we disambiguated it before we started recording but let's get this clear this is a dutch name you're rocking is that right that's right i'm dutch i born and raised uh, essentially in amsterdam just outside of where all the windmills come from it's called zandam and my family emigrated when I was about 13, moved here, my sister, my parents, and we never went back because it's, it's, there's not much in the Netherlands that I want to return for. I like a visit, but honestly, it's, it's not all that. We're lovely to tourists, but once you live there, <laughs> Dutch, everything changes and you're supposed to be Dutch, which isn't that much fun, trust me. It's not. So, yeah, it's a Dutch name. I'm Dutch. Uh, Welkom allemaal. Fijne avond. Uh, Etc. <laughs> <laughs> and Jan, 
obviously we we uh, covered this game and you caught wind of it. Um, how did you catch wind of it? And what was your what were your thoughts in it? Did we give it a fair treatment? Like it was it was really bizarre because it, it's an album that came out in two thousand or two thousand and one. I should know this, but it came out quite a while ago. Uh, and I 2000, had, 2000. Yeah, 2000. Yeah. And I, I heard via Facebook, there's a China drum fan page kind of thing going on. Uh, and they put this podcast on, you know, hey, I think it was via Adam because you spoke to him about that podcast. Mm, right, yeah. So he put that up there. Uh, I listened to it. And I honestly, uh, a couple of times I was very, very choked up. Because I thought no one really got the album, and suddenly I hear two blokes I've never seen before. I didn't know who you guys were, and you were saying things that had been in my heart, especially talking about the enemy review, which maybe we'll get to in this. And I just thought, just yes, come on, come on, to say it like it is. How dare they say that the guitars all sound the same? I mean, for fuck's sake, can I can I swear by the way? Or- of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm quite. I would encourage it. Yeah. All right, <laughs> excellent. So I, I, and then a couple of things you said. You know, I, I didn't take notes. Who said exactly what? But I, I was very choked up. I really thought finally someone gets it. And a lot of music I've made when I was a musician, when that was my world, and that's all I did. Um, it was wasn't really about chart success or you know fame and fortune that never happened. But every now and then someone would come and uh, come up to you and say, "Oh, that song changed my life," or uh, "I was in a terrible time and I listened to that song and it it made everything all right again." And it sounds really cordy and cheesy, but that is literally what sort of makes me whole. So hearing you two. Talking about this album to skin, uh, in like, you know, like you'd really listened to it and you really got it. That was just divine. And I, I think the podcast was uh, a year ago yesterday. Yeah, so yeah, just exactly a year. Nuts, ago. nuts. So mm-hmm. that that's how this all came to me. You guys came to me. That's you know, it's that's wild to hear that. I actually feel myself. Getting a wee bit choked up just just saying that, you know, and um, and I've got a heart made of stone. <laughs> as, as anyone who knows me will know. Um, no, no, so, super, super. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to hear that. And you know, Chris, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But the thing you said there that really hit it for me is like actually listen to it. I mean, that's what we try and do. Like we try to give things a fair shake, whether we like them or not. And sometimes that's hard. No, even I, if we do like them, even but, if we love them, you know. But I think you, Mark, you're like a champion of this song called "The Beast." Mm-hmm. Where you, <laughs> you you like I heard you say in this podcast a year ago. Oh, you actually grab people and go listen to this because this is mint. Okay, mm. that's that sounds like yeah, that's that's what I wanted to hear twenty three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say one of the main motivations for doing that album, and it's a little to do with that critical feedback, was the outrage I felt on your behalf at that. 
Uh, because being in a band mm. ourselves, yeah. you know, you have to you have to develop a bit of a thick skin, obviously. Mm. And there are things that you just know are just completely unreasonable, and there'll be replies you get to emails or things you read or whatever that'll just you can tell somebody's phoned it in or they've made some offhand comment, right. and. That's just that's the nature of it, right? That's you yeah, just have yeah, to yeah. like suck it up and get on with it. But there are things sometimes that to me are so egregious that whilst I recognise that it's probably not very becoming for the artist themselves to throw the toys out the pram, I really felt like picking that up on your behalf there because certainly some of those reviews were just so fucking off the mark that it wasn't a case of just different opinions it was mm. just a case of like yeah just fucking nonsense just Office someone down. just yeah getting something yeah. out the road so that they can move on to their next task and not giving it any mind and so yeah this album did definitely suffer from that i really it, well i don't want to give any spoilers away but in in the notes that you'd sent us that i hope you're going to kind of take us through the history here yeah. there are three particular uh tastemakers that for whatever reason didn't take to this record and i really do think their indifference was pivotal and they were all wrong. And that that's the, that's the annoying thing, because you did have quite a bit of critical success initially, and then the momentum went out of that when it, yeah. it kind of yeah. ran up against the brick wall of these three particular kind of indie sort of names. And it, the, the consequences were an album that, in, in my mind, was you know an inspired piece of work and very brave that just never was afforded the support of the musical community as a result. So... Whilst I acknowledge that, yeah, you know, musicians just deal with it. It's bad feedback. Just sometimes you just want somebody out there to fight your corner and say, by the way, he's not going to say it because that would just be a bad look. But yeah. you're fucking idiots. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> you guys. And so that was, I, I, I would personally find doing that episode quite cathartic as well. Cause I'd always wanted to vent about that, man. Yeah, it was like being cancelled. Um, it was just bizarre. Just what the fuck? Why? But there we go. You know, you're like 23 years later. Well, it's 22 years later, a year ago. And it, yeah. it, it just, yeah, it honestly put a spring in my step and just thought, there you go. That'll do. It sounds so cheesy. But it, but you probably relate to this because you're in bands yourself. It makes it all worth it when you just have a few people who get it. You're like, all right, not go mad. That was something we really wanted. We really thought we were going to not quite reinvent the wheel, but we'd come up with a really cool wheel. And like you say, the certain powers to be just, I think it being ignored is even worse than, than um, any of the other stuff. But yeah, what can you do? Can I ask a question? A, self, a slightly self-indulgent question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, it's been a year since the episode came out. Um, and yeah. has it? Have you done anything in terms of you know picking up the guitar again, or, or you know working on projects? Are you still doing that? Like, how does that yeah, kind of work? I'm, like, I'm, I'm a little bit. Yeah. Your, yeah. I'm a little bit broken, to be honest. Mm. The the whole experience of being in back because I'm an old fucker. I'm 59, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, success with the band I'd been in before I joined China Drum, and then we became the Drum. That was seven, eight years of my life. Before that. There was a life of trying to do music. There, there comes a point where disappointment keeps just slapping you about the head. And, yeah, it's it's all very much to do with your mental health. Um, it's very complicated. It's very draining to be on a tour bus forever. I think Adam mentioned kind of tour psychosis. 
uh, where you're just you're going around. If you go around America enough times, East Coast, West Coast, East Coast, West Coast, you're not home for two, three months, and you're home for two weeks, and then you do it again, and nothing really happens. It just it hurts you, like physically, mentally, you're just destroyed. So I've kind of given up, but kind of put a, did put a spring in my step having your podcast say, it wasn't shit. It's not you necessarily. <laughs> Maybe I'm shit, but you know, there's a, a small and quality audience out there. But also, I recently got back in touch with a couple of um, my bandmates from the band I was in before I joined China Drum. I'm making a whole mess of the um, chronology here, but that has made a difference because it is. It's if if your mind isn't in your music, then this what are you going to do? Joining a covers band, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be an option. That might be better. There we go. Uh, so you've alluded to obviously the band you were in before, uh, China Drum or the Drum. Yeah. I think it would just be nice for you to, at your own pace, uh, and you can muck about with the chronology as much as you want, but sure. uh, to sort of walk us through the backstory of how you ended up in the band, what you've been doing up to that point, you know, how you met them, and then those early days of being in the group. Because the lineup changed. We spoke about this in the show mm. where Adam moved from drums. He was like famously one of those drummer singers that you, oh, you rarely a, saw in the wild. What a pain. And then he be- I know, I know. And then he, he moved to the to the front yeah. and then you took over on the drums. So maybe just tell us a little bit about that that period of the band before we dig into the actual album process itself. No, my pleasure. No, I was um, in a band called Compulsion. Three Irish guys, two from Dublin, one from Sligo. Can I say, I think I've seen a video of you playing Tea in the Park with your hair bright red and all in white. Is that right? That's us. That's um, yeah. from our second album, The Future is Medium, still available in all good <laughs> record shops. And it's it was, um, yeah, what to say about Compulsion. Um, phenomenal band. Like Again, I'm kind of surprised you haven't done an unsung podcast about compulsion. Maybe you will one day because there you go. Honestly, there's mm. something there that is so interesting. The backstory to that is ridiculous. But for the sake of um, brevity, I just auditioned. There was a time in the in the nineties where I was trying to be a professional drummer and I thought, you know, you just, you do session work. And then when you've made enough money from sessions, then you do your own music. That's kind of how I thought. Um, Got a call one day. Oh, can you do an audition for this band called the amazing colossal men? That's a mouthful. Got a, got sent a cassette because that's CDs haven't been invented. I listened to it. I thought, yeah, okay. I could do that. Turned up for the audition, uh, played less than three minutes. Uh, we just fell in love with each other. Lots of stuff happened. Uh, signed to Virgin, who we sued, uh, made an album in LA, blah, 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 blah. Reformed with nothing as a band called Compulsion, which is these three guys and me. And we had uh, earned some money from suing Virgin. They settled out of court. Uh, I can't tell you the details because it's all NDA stuff. But anyway, course, yeah. Virgin backed down from actually going to court. This is in the days when you could get legal aid. 
unheard yeah. of now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it changed so much for all of us. So we had some money, made our own label called Fabulon Recorders, ditched all the material we'd ever played together for several years and reformed as Compulsion and started with a manifesto of this is who we are, this is what we're going to do. this music and then whenever we went up north we need a support band and we loved china drum they were just this crazy three-piece funniest fuckers on the planet to just you know geordies they're so fucking funny like everything is a joke they'll say things and you go like i i, I you've made up a word what, what's going on like for example <laughs> Uh, the guitarist Bill would say, "Why, well, yeah, man, we're we're playing uh, uh, in a student town, so it'll be full of one eggs." And I go, like, ah, "That's hilarious!" And I'm thinking, "One eggs? What the hell is that?" So next time he'd say, "I go, uh, Bill, what's what's a one eg?" And he go, "Why, well, yeah, man, it's a one egg." I go, ah, "That's what? What do you mean?" <laughs> Why, well, yeah, man, when your guns ruined a, a student's flat late and you open the fridge, all that's in there is one egg. and that's geordies as far as i'm concerned they're all funny as hell so whenever we went up north as compulsion this band i was in with three irish guys um we'd try and get china drum because they were hilarious and they were so good live i mean i heard what you said about goose fair i I get it Green Day references, I get it. They supported Green Day, <laughs> believe it or not, as a three-piece. They're just very punk, you know, spit the songs out. There's no click tracks. It speeds up, it slows down. It's insane. But the energy live with the drummer singing, like drum parts that are really very, very physical. And then he could just sing. Amazing. So we did a co-headline tour in Japan in 96 97 kind of time in yeah we went to japan for a couple of weeks swapped headline every other night and then came back two weeks later my band compulsion had dropped we're all unemployed and then within a few weeks months i get a phone call from china drum saying look we've got this plan to get adam away from the drum kit have him be a front man for real do you want to play drums and i thought yeah, I'm doing nothing. I'm unemployed. I'm getting married this summer. I haven't got a pot to piss in. My God, what am I going to do? Um, thank you. I just need time to think about it. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry. Talking to their manager called Phil Barton, just talking to him, and he said, Look, just come up and meet the guys. And at the time, China Drum were recording, finishing, mastering, and recording uh, their second album, Self Made Maniac. It's funny how you always take for granted The opening grams that you've been hanging us 
So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I really like these guys. I haven't seen them since Japan. Let's go and say hi. So we drive up to, uh, it's a recording studio, kind of an hour north of London, inside called the Church or the Chapel. Met the guys, met the producer, Al Clay, who was a phenomenal, back in the 90s, was just a phenomenal hit-making machine. Um, and he'd clearly been employed to make this rabble-rousing goose fair mess of beauty and energy into a well-packaged, rounded product uh, with Adam featuring vocally. So I got it. They needed a drummer because you can't do what he then had to do and still play drum parts. So I met up with the guys. Uh, I could hear what was going on. And then I sat down with the two brothers, Bill McQueen, Dave McQueen. So Bill's guitar, Dave is bass. And we were just talking about what they were doing. And it was really obvious to me that they weren't very happy with how self-made maniac was being developed and had all of the rough edges shaved off it, and especially Bill, who's a really passionate just he, he just wears his heart on his sleeve and he just gets it broken all the time. He's a beautiful soul and an amazing guitarist. Um, <clears throat> and I thought, okay, they're not quite sure what's going on. And they said, yeah, and if we ever get the chance for another album, then we're just going to do it how we want to do it. And I thought, that that's what, what's not to like. Why would I not want to join three people who are lovely, playing some loud stuff in front of decent-sized audiences, and then maybe get a third album where maybe I'll get a song or two that I want to do onto the whole thing. So that's when I joined them. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I jump in for a second there, man? So just about Self Made Maniac. I think I said on the show, I, mean, I prefer Goose Fair to that album. Uh-huh. I think Self Made Maniac conformed to a lot of trends in British rock music at the time. That's perhaps partly because of the production and the label's pressure for that. And I take on board what you're saying about the brothers' reaction in particular to the direction it was going in. What are your feelings about the album? Do you, do you like it? Uh, I mean, do I are, like I, it? I, it, it yeah. I mean, Likes of Wipeout, I think, is a very good China drum song. I just, I'm not sure about a lot of the other stuff on there. No, it, it, it's, it's. Uh, what can I say about an album that gave me a second life? I, it, mm-hmm. it, it, for that reason, I love that album. Uh, musically... I don't think it's anywhere near as strong the way it finished as uh, Goose Fair. Goose Fair to me is, wow, this is, it's insane. They're three kids that went to school together, have never been in another band. Literally, they've never been in any other band doing anything else. Uh, my background is all sorts of, uh, including working men's club bands, you know, function bands, just to learn whatever the hell, uh, jazz. I had a go at it all found what I liked eventually. They knew from day one. They heard, I think, Stiff Little Fingers and just went, oh, and Husker do, and just went, "That's we're going to do that. And they did that, and on Self Made Maniac, it just, it's too polished. Uh, we did a lot of stuff live. I found a bunch of cassettes where it's usually my mum recording off the radio or, mm-hmm. you know, someone in the label going, oh, yeah, I record, or someone in the Netherlands recorded a radio show we did there. Once I have that digitized, I'll just forward you a copy so you can see that's what it sounded like live. And it's, I prefer it, but I I can't 
have too many negative thoughts about an album, like I said, that gave me life. That is, is, that would be rude and unkind. Yeah. So a a really fascinating point that I think we sort of a we speculated about it, Mark, during mm-hmm. the, the the show itself, and it's interesting to see Jan mention it in the in the notes that he'd sent us ahead of time here that there was a sense with this third record. This is probably the last record we'll do at a big label because we're going to take a lot of chances with it. And also, I suspect you were just somewhat jaded because you'd mentioned about uh, Compulsion being dropped. It was one little Indian. Yeah. It was that kind of financial downturn. I think they, they only kept Bjork and Skunk and Ansel, That's it. Say. Yep. Yeah. And so that, that kind of disillusionment combined with this sense of like, you know what, we're not happy with the way this is going. Let's really push the boat out. We may burn our, I'm mixing metaphors here, we may burn our bridges (laughs) with the next record, but we need to do it for ourselves. That's a really fascinating psychology, that sort of sense of, as I said, I always felt it was a brave record, but from what you're saying, you went into it knowing that you were probably going to piss off and alienate most of the industry. Yeah, totally. We we knew when we had the meeting, because we, so we toured Self-Made Maniac, and then you get the meeting where you have the sales figures and you can see that, you know, everyone's head's a little down and no one really wants to make eye contact. And you're just thinking, oh, shit, we're going to get dropped any second. And then it was like, mm-hmm. but it was good enough to release a budget for a third album. Would you, you know, and I'm just thinking, there we go. That's it. And And being already old then, you know, like a proper grown-up, um, and having been through the whole compulsion, signing to Virgin and then to One Little Indian and being dropped and picked up and dropped and blah, 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 blah. I knew that was not just like we're going to have one more chance. I, I knew that was it for the rest of my life. That was it. There was never going to be anyone, because you you guys know how much money you need just mm-hmm. to have, well, like anyone listening knows, how much money do you, do you need to keep four people fed and watered while they're not yeah. stacking shelves or doing deliveries or whatever the fuck, you know? It, it, it's insane. You need such a budget. So when Mantra said, Mantra are part of um, Beggar's Banquet, so that's the China drum label, Mantra, um, they went, yeah, you can do one more album. Uh, here's your budget. And we looked at it and thought, we can make that work just by... <laughs> setting up a very small, humble rehearsal studio up in the north. I was living in Brighton already, and the three lads, obviously, they're all around Newcastle. And we just found a bloke who was renting out space as a rehearsal studio in a disused uh, miners' social club and, you know, where their showers were, their dressing rooms for when they had to do their work. Uh, And he just converted, by converted, I mean, he sort of emptied rooms and made sure the power supply was there and some lights. Mm-hmm. For a peppercorn rent kind of thing, we could just bring our own stuff in. With our budget, we could buy uh, some digital recording decks, some mics, uh, a chair, a desk. I mean, like literally just really basic. There was no heating and um, mold on the walls, and we dubbed it the TB Ward because, like I said, Geordies <laughs> can't just not make jokes out of shit. So it was the TB Ward, and we spent so much time in there. Like every, we would do 14, 18 hour days there all the time because we knew this is it. You know, we better deliver something. So yeah, we we 
we're just given this opportunity. And we really did take it really seriously. We didn't spend it all on, um, you know, going out and drugs. The, just yeah. no, We just thought, all right, we'll go to, um, yeah, we'll go to work. So, so I understand, though, that the songwriting approach, though, was so different that you actually found it a bit of a struggle for a while. Is that right? Yeah, totally. It was, it was not. Uh, the band, like I said, they were from school. They'd, they'd been together, never worked in any other bands, never, uh, I don't think any of them have ever really done like music lessons or learnt notation or just, they just did. They just heard their heroes and they went, we can do that. And they just went with it and it kept going and going and going and going and going. I mean, it's, it's insane how well they did just with where they started. Yeah. And uh, the way they wrote songs was just to sit in the room the shed, as they called it, which is on Adam's parents. It's kind of like a farm caravan park for tourists to rock up during summer. They can park up with their caravan and there's showers and water and stuff. And there was a shed, which is literally a shed with the the mowing machine and all the garden tools. And they just have a PA set up and they would write all of Goose Fair and all of Self Made Maniac was written in the shed. And their new material, some of it, I think, might have even been written in there. And suddenly there's a fourth member, and I've, I've not spent much time in the, the shed. I think it's on a video uh, called Stop It All Adding Up, which is from Self Made Maniac. You can see the shed if you really want to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so the four of us got together in the TB ward, and we start playing, and nothing much happened. It was just weird it was so different to have four people and not the usual and adam was already a dad he wanted to move out of that area because he couldn't afford a house for his wife and child so he moved quite a long way away which made it quite challenging to have him in every day that we had to work mm-hmm. we we had to find a new way to write music uh, and that was a real challenge because they were so used to you know three people just jamming and that only worked for i, I think it's less than probably like one in four songs on the Diskin album came from just sitting down and going oh i've got a bass line or i've got a riff or i've got this beat or you know uh, this yeah. was very very different do you think adam was struggling to adapt to that new role as well because i think when you're at the the foundational moments of a song you know, a lot of it's drums, bass, guitar, getting some of that kind of musicality together, even just a, a general concept of the song. He's a vocalist now. Yeah. Rather than being one of those integral initial ingredients, there is something of a of a truth to that vocals tend to go over the top. I'm not saying they're not... No, no, I know, you know what you it's mean. It's not an interwoven process, but do you think he felt a little bit unsure of what to do, frankly, you know, sitting yeah. in his hands? I, th- I think it's like you're almost saying something I hadn't quite thought of by getting me in, he sort of shot himself in the foot mm-hmm. because who's going to sit on the drum stool when you're writing a song? What do you do? And it, it, it was briefly a real conundrum. We really didn't know what to do. We would, you know, hack through a few of the old tunes, <laughs> favorites to make sure everything was sounding right. And then what do you want to do? And it would be very, it would be just like a blank page, but uh, my background, uh, you know, I, I know people always think of drummers as playing drums. Uh, my wife as well. If I go, oh, yeah, I'm a musician. She goes, no, you're a drummer. 
<laughs> because she's from the north and quite cruel from red car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's she's kind of right. But yeah, so I, I've I've always played musical instruments other than being a percussionist. So you know, especially guitar. I really like writing songs. I tried to write songs from the previous band, Compulsion, but we had such amazing songwriters that there wasn't much room on the broom for yet another songwriter. So I, it kind of, that, that era with Compulsion really shaped me as someone who wants to write music because it's, as you guys know, it's not like, all right, well, I'm going to write a song and then next thing you've got a song. You've got to begin, you've got to develop, you've got to keep notes, you've got to have lyrical ideas, you've got to, you know, it's a whole thing, except for the odd one that just sort of lands on your lap. You've really got to keep track of what the hell it is you're trying to do. So I had a ton of stuff that I was always kind of writing, always trying to do. So I just brought some to rehearsal, just went like, look, I've got all these songs, some of these might work, and uh, just listen to them. And yeah, the guys liked a few of them, so we started working on those, and that was a really good starting point because we, with the digital technology, we had something that people are really used to now. You can sample, you can edit, you can just do it so quickly. You don't need a razor blade and glue. I don't mean for sniffing. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, for like, <laughs> you know, editing tape, it's, yeah. it's analog tape. So we had all this technology so we could record some music and then go, oh, actually, that bit sounds better if we do it almost backwards or inside out or swap the sections. So we sort of chop stuff together digitally and then we go, what does that sound like? Go, all right, play. How about we play that now? Right, okay, let's go play that. So you go play it and then you might do that process again where you just pick things out and grab another song that middle eight there would, would that be a verse you know and you just we just started with um a few little ideas we just started to develop something cut and paste but we had to be able to play it because no good mm -hmm. if it was just like computerized digitized quantized we didn't want that we didn't want to play to click and we didn't want to do sample heavy we just wanted to get ideas you know like rather than where they got their ideas from jamming the three of them we just grabbed ideas threw them together and then went all right let's play that now you mentioned something about a manifesto as well didn't you yeah it's got to be able to play it <laughs> and we're not using instruments that we haven't played it's got to be drums it's got to be bass it's got to be a vocal we're not going to go for cellos brass sections, keyboards. We're not doing that. We're going to just use digital technology to help us find the song that we know. That, well, we've got to find songs, otherwise our album, which we, from day one, uh, nicknamed our glorious failure because we knew it was going to be our last thing. So glorious failure was we had to fill it with songs. It's, you know, Bands are great at talking up a storm. We're going to be this and we're going to do that and it's going to be amazing. And then you're suddenly confronted with just a very quiet rehearsal studio and you've got to do something. So we figured out using all that editing facility just to make something we could then play. And that was our manifesto. Got to play it. It's quite interesting because I think one of the things that is quite appealing about the album is that it feels a bit 
disparate and you know it, it's it's cool that it goes in different directions and all that and from what you're talking about there it's like the process was like that as well yeah. you know it was necessarily fragmented and I guess that very much seems to inform the feel of the record I think you know and there's definitely a lot to be said for persevering in the face mm. of you know the blank the blank slate and then realizing hang on we do have bits here so maybe and then the record comes out sounding a bit like bits but that's cool that's why yeah, 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 yeah. I it's, like it you know it's a stu- it's a studio album I'll make no bones about it because you mentioned that in your podcast. You know, it's like, hey, why not use the power of the studio? Fuck yeah. The the studio is an amazing place. I, I adore it. I, I love playing live, but to play live on a tour means you're sat like this on a bus with your arms crossed for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And you just, oh, it's so, it drives you nuts, which mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, it's, it's, so the studio is kind of, you know, I'm with these three dudes who are just adore. They're so I can't. I wish you'd meet them one day. You will just it'll blow your mind how lovely they are. I know you spoke to Adam, who's just such an adorable human being. Um, mm-hmm. And the problem for him for this album was that he couldn't be around for a lot of it. He just couldn't physically, uh, couldn't be there. He was, he was, he'd given everything uh and he suddenly had a kid and a new place to to do and the pressure of glorious failure you know the guy just couldn't always be there but that meant that bill dave and i knew well we better get fucking on with it we've got to do this because we got a meeting in two months with john emperor from mantra and we better have something to play in that's going to blow his tiny mind because if we don't if we just give him another song that could have belonged on the first two albums i I don't think he's gonna accept that we've got a vision and we're doing stuff so the the pressure was really on everyone and yeah it's it's uh adam had to adapt you know to the the fact that it had all changed um and he didn't find it easy and he we've talked about this he found it really difficult and it's like a no-brainer. Of course it would be difficult. It's, it's it's his band in a way. You know, he's the face of China Drum. If there was an interview, please give Adam the microphone because it's it's hilarious. It's it's he's just a classic Geordie. But yeah, it was Can I uh, can I put the cat amongst the pigeons and ask you quite a direct question? And I'm mindful yeah. that, you know, Adam obviously shared their previous episodes and so your bandmates may well hear this, so I don't want to make it awkward, but Adam has key input in this record, but I know he wasn't as involved in the songwriting process as he had been prior. Mm. He wasn't playing the drums on this album. Some of it. But, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. He does He does yeah. uh, in certain tracks, that's right. Um, uh, the more aggressive stuff, actually, at certain points as well. Some of it. That's um, Adam. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but is it your impression that Adam, d- does he feel as close to this record as to the other records? I, I, I think he's kind of grown to like it. But at the time, he really didn't. I mean, it, it literally, it's the weirdest thing. I'm with three guys. I mean, I put this, you know, I wrote some notes after your podcast because I thought I'm getting on a bit. My memory is going to start fading. <laughs> Why don't I just write down for my own sake and then I'll forward it to you guys to see if, because you had a few questions during that podcast from a year ago. You asked yeah. a few questions. I thought, fuck it. I'll just answer those questions, send it to you. Then it's off my chest. And anyway, I've got these notes. So I don't know, for my eulogy or something, someone might be able to wedge it in there. But yeah, there was, there was you know, uh, one of the, the 
probably the lead single off the album, a song called Horns Front. this song i didn't know it and the day i found out was while we were having a meeting with our record label and we were all sat there in a room with our with john emperor who's our a and r head of and other people tall paul and a few other names that escaped me and and adam just goes i hate that song it makes me want to puke and i'm <laughs> sat there across the room thinking motherfucker that you've never said anything other than being reluctant yeah. to work on it, I get that. But wow, okay, this is this is tricky. But the thing is, with Adam, he has this voice. Um, for me, it's like it is literally an instrument. It's just you can you can just feed it information. You can just give it like like an Adam Lambert kind of. You know the very famous singer who now yeah, sings yeah. Mm -hmm. stunt singer almost for Queen. It's yeah. like Adam is honestly, you know, we're going back to 2000, but Jesus Christ, you could just give him anything. Tell him what you wanted it to sound like, and then he would just absolutely blow the roof off. He just has this amazing voice. I think he's essentially pitch perfect. Uh, even when he's got flu, he'll just doctor footlights and he'll just sing. It, it's, I mean, what a thing. So I just thought, you know, fuck it. I'll just write some songs for that instrument and you're going to sing them and we had really big head-to-heads uh really big arguments about how to deliver that song and how to get that lyric across because he wouldn't have written the lyrics i you know it, it, he had to literally just do a job but uh, so pivotal like honestly what's the first thing people listen to on the record it's not the drums <laughs> Or the bass, mm -hmm. see, you know, progression, or is it, you know, pentatonic scale on the solo? No, they're going to listen to the voice, the, the, the human thing. And Adam, just this voice. I mean, I still, honestly, I get choked up when I listen to some of the songs. I just hear all the battles we went through. And I think that energy, that negativity, that anger, that fuck, that Dutch cunt, you know, he's fucking making me do this <laughs> song that makes me want to puke. And I can hear it. And I love it because that song <laughs> is about fighting uh, your distant memories where you were bullied or beaten or whatever. I mean, it's it's so for me, it's so uh, it's like a full circle. It's just glorious. This feels like a bit of a leading question, so feel free to not answer it right. But um, I kind of get a sense from some of the, the notes that you sent us that it kind of felt as though you were maybe driving a bit of direction of the record. Would you say that's fair? yeah, 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 totally. It it had to be. China drum, so the three-piece China drum, are the most democratic band I've ever met. They are literally, they all agree on everything all the time. Just, it's insane, because I, my background with bands is there's always someone driving. There's always someone behind the steering wheel, because otherwise, you know, you're going to head off in however many directions as there are members in the band. And they just were a, a, a unit but for this new thing that we had to do to be a four-piece there was no one in charge there was no one who could lead i thought adam would lead but he couldn't because he moved away and was so uh, the, i don't know if either of you have kids yet but 
that's a paper round, especially your first one. You're like, what the fuck has happened to my life? My everything that I used to do, you know, Adam would have a motorbike because he, him and Bill love like proper uh, 800s, 1250. Yeah. Like they would just do maybe slightly over the speed limit, you know, in where they lived. I, they were just obsessed and he had to give all that up. And suddenly he's not, what's the expression the cock of the north in charge of everything it's all happening it's all evolving around him uh horrible situation for him and yeah i think he's now you know we got back in touch um 20 years after we last saw each other we just literally at the end of that band we didn't see each other barely communicated and i saw them last summer Uh, it was glorious i saw adam saw bill sorry bill couldn't make us saw dave yeah it was absolutely amazing but it, it it was a huge change so i i felt like okay uh i love being in a band where someone else is in charge it's great but they've got to be able to do it and if there's no one i'll have a go that's my background so i did in my teens you know my school band was my band that was <laughs> there's an unsung podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's like dave's like dave's high school band which is yeah. like a running joke for many years <laughs> yeah our, our third uh, our third host for a long time uh his his high school band was a definite recurring theme um <laughs> you know it's i, I just kind of want to look at what you're saying about the demise of the band and that kind of like strange distance that happens mm. and just sort of mm-hmm. maybe this is more aimed at people who are listening who are not in bands because i think People who are in bands will probably find this quite easy to relate to, but when you're in a band, especially if it's a band for quite some time, and you have goals and you maybe make some of them, you probably don't make others. Uh, most of our, most of us, mm. uh, don't do what China Drum did. And even though I'm sure it's all about perspective, and you might say, "Oh, it was a success in some ways, and it didn't peak in other ways." For us, China Drum did very, very well. The things yeah. you've seen, the places you've been, yeah. uh, semi compulsion. The things you've done are the kind of things that we as kids dreamt of and most of us will never get to but when you've been through the mill with a group of people like that and all the different pushes and pulls that happen along the course of that like oh we didn't get to do this because so-and-so wouldn't make it or didn't want to do it we didn't do this and resentments build up and frustrations yeah and at the end of it even if there is no personal animosity directly this this idea of not seeing people that you loved and lived in the pocket with for 20 years it's it's kind of born of like a mixture of disappointment and pain and a need to recover from all the draining effects of that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's, it's, I'm, I'm married and I've only got married once and I'm still married, but I think it's a bit like, it's, it's like the ultimate breakup. It's just mm-hmm. because it's not just with one person, but it's, it's, I mean, it is weird as fuck. You're living in each other's pockets, but literally you got some money. Fuck yeah. I'll buy it beers for everyone you got yeah i'll buy dinner or you can stay here i've still got some or you're just living in each other's pockets especially touring really it's that kind of um band of brothers vibe where you spend so much time together and then suddenly not us we we, i didn't go oh i can't be in a room with adam oh our egos are too fucking big not at all i love that man you know, the the four of us were just like a big old loving. Yeah, musical differences here and there, the odd. That song makes me sick. Oh, well, never mind. We're still doing it, so fuck you. <laughs> um, but we we were together, and then someone else, a for, an unforeseen force, 
which is essentially money, it, the money stops and everything just ends, like, like literally in a heartbeat. It, it was insane. We did uh, our last European tour, believe it or not, supporting suicidal tendencies, which is fucking insane because we were not, not a good fit. But that doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Especially the suicidal fan base. We're <laughs> like, what? Yeah, sure, <laughs> we did we did a gig in uh, in Belgium. <laughs> it was like night four or five. And we're in Belgium, and the only way into this to the stage was through the crowd. To the stage, it's a weird <laughs> setup. So we we're there. We've you know we're doing our bit, and um, we play a couple of songs. And Adam's just looking at the crowd, who are looking so confused. And it, 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 the penny drops because he's smarter than me. And he goes, uh, sorry, uh, just to make it clear, we are not suicidal tendencies. <laughs> and the crowd suddenly all smiled and were like, oh, shit, it's just the support act. But I don't think they normally have support bands <laughs> there. And then it was a little bit better. But, you know, it's like a we did this tour with suicidal tendencies, last gig in Copenhagen, and on the bus back, we all knew that was it we would never ever the four of us play a gig again as the drum it was just no one had sacked us yet we hadn't been dropped yet but we just knew it we'd already heard how badly it was selling we already could see that we couldn't win over a a suicidal crowd (laughs) um (laughs) and we were screwed so the tour bus dropped me off at brighton and the bus went up north to newcastle and I didn't see any of them for for two decades. Yeah, you had a blowout on the way back, didn't you? You, you kind of you and Adam had a bit. Of, you lunched, didn't you? Yeah, I, it 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 had to be done when you know everything is over, and I just had to have a chat with Adam about how I thought we could have done this more lovingly, uh, amicably. Why make that making of that album such a fucking ordeal and I had it out with him and I was shitting myself because Adam is six foot plus built like an absolute brick shit house I mean he is so fucking he's like an ox and I'm not (laughs) (laughs) and I thought I gotta get this off my chest uh otherwise I'll regret it forever and he might hurt me badly and he didn't he just (laughs) sat there and said yeah okay fair enough I've heard you and that was it we didn't speak for a long time until we sort of made up uh, via social media. We had a meeting of minds about, I think by now it's probably like five years ago, where he suddenly reached out to me because I'd been commenting on the China Drum Facebook page and chat, chat, chat. And he just sent me this very, very lovely message. And we are all back, back in love, back on the same page, we we remember it. Let's put it like this: we remember the skin the same way now, and that is so important because yeah, I, I poured my heart and soul into that. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to hear that, obviously, because those kind of words hang in the air if you don't see the person for some time afterwards, and it, it's, it's great to get a, get a fresh start on that. Yeah. Um, so you did uh, you raised the issue earlier on about some of the questions that we raised. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, absolutely delighted to get one of them cleared up. What is the fucking deal with that album cover? <laughs> <laughs> Budget. 
budget (laughs) it's money i've mentioned money once or twice it's like we had (laughs) no budget so we had the artwork in our minds we talked about it we'd found some uh ideas that had led us to that you know kind of almost like pompeii kind of the idea we wanted we knew the title it would be dead skin that's one of the songs and if you say dead skin very very often repeated on a loop it sounds like diskin D-I-S-K-I-N, um, which I think confused a lot of people. They thought we meant like disc in, like a CD, but dead skin, dead skin, dead skin, dead skin, dead skin, dead skin, dead skin. And we thought, okay, we'll have a suburban setting, like a kitchen or a sitting room, families sat all together, and everything is just covered in a really thick layer of dust, which is, you know, a lot of dust is dead skin. So we thought that is such a powerful image. We talked to Mantra about it, and they just went, are you joking? There's like, you know, we've got literally a couple of hundred pounds for the artwork, and they'd already spent most of that on the... (laughs) The fact that the logo for the drum, it's kind of a little square kind of Inca type lettering. Clever. Yep. Nice font. Great idea. No money left. Next idea was the, the I can't remember her name. That's so rude. Uh, the girl who did the artwork, she was, she came in with uh, this beautiful photo of an elephant. I think it was not licensed, so you could just use it. And it, the discussion went to, well, that's thick skin which is dead skin, which is, and you've got horns front, and an <laughs> elephant has two horns and horns front. <laughs> and we just thought, you know what? You've got to pick your battles. We have no plan B, and it's not going to make a fucking difference. It's just going to be a shit album cover. And so we went, with, <laughs> let's have a shit album cover of a beautiful animal. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of... The, the way you describe it there kind of underlines the sort of almost nihilistic approach you seem to have taken with the entire process of the record. Some things you, know? you have no no control and you've got to just let that go. You know, the, still to this day, the one that hurts me the most is that song Horns Front. The uh, single edit has edited out the bit I like the most about that song. <laughs> it's on the album. It's just, part is it's that? tension grows with every blow. right near the beginning yeah and they cut it they went oh no don't bore us get to the chorus oh (laughs) fuck okay you've got you really when you're waiting for favors um you've got Mm -hmm. to be thankful and appreciative because otherwise you just there's just people are just gonna tell you oh then fuck off completely Uh, you know that you know that's true it's just they'll tell you to fuck off um, was, a couple of a couple I of other was, names that were quite key to it as well, uh, Fred Purser and Phil Vinyl. Phil Vinyl, yeah. Vinyl, vinyl. literally. Jeez. Phil wow. Vinyl. I know he's in the record industry. Go figure. But it's his real name. Yeah, Fred Purser is a legend in Newcastle and even more he's like a god in China drum and the drum. We love Fred Purser. He was in uh, guitarist. 
found a member of penetration. Go check him out, kids. Amazing, real punk band. And then he was uh, one of the guitarists in uh, Tigers of Pantang. Sorry for giggling, <laughs> but they're so new wave of British heavy metal, it hurts. And he's this massive player. He's like 6'2", big fucking shovels of hands, such a delicate guitar player. And he has a studio, 24-track, proper drum booth, vocal booth, um, residential part in the shittest bit of Newcastle. Sorry for the residents of where the studio is, but literally (laughs) it's you're just going to not have tyres on your car if you park there, or it's just... Terror, especially for a delicate southern flower like me. It's not <laughs> somewhere you want to spend too much time on your own. Yeah, Fred Purser did all of uh, Goose Fair uh, and all the stuff they're doing now. They're back in with Fred Purser because China Drum have reformed as China Drum. Um, and we decided we had to be local because we couldn't afford – well, we, we had no budget, so we can't afford bed and breakfast hotel stuff. So we would yeah. just stay – the, the lads would be home and just commute to the studio. Uh, and I'd either sleep on the floor at one of the lads' houses or there's a spare room at Trinity Heights. It's the name of the studio. Mm-hmm. And Fred Purse is just a magician. He just is really good mic placement and edits and, you know, the whole thing, analog. We, re- we worked and demoed digital Everything after that was analog because our manifesto was you've got to be able to play it, you've got to be able to perform it, even though there's stuff that's us sampled ourselves. You've it's got to go onto tape. So everything's dumped onto tape at Trinity Heights. And then we got Phil Vinyl in to be our producer, um, recommended by Mantra, our label, and he'd done famously placebo, Nancy Boy. Yeah, which we actually uh, mentioned placebo in the context yep. of the episode as well. Uh, yeah. China Drum toured with them, didn't yep. they, early on? Yep. So before I was on the scene, uh, they did a t- uh, tour supporting Placebo at the time, just about the time Nancy Boy uh, was released. And funny anecdote, Bill um, McQueen, guitarist from China Drum, had been on this tour for a while. And um, Brian, who I've never met, suddenly Brian started to do that Manscara, you know, they're doing the, yeah. the, yeah. the eyeliner. And Bill's eyesight isn't is notoriously shit. And <laughs> Brian has done this suddenly in the middle of the tour, he starts doing this eyeliner stuff. And Bill goes up to him and goes, Wait, Brian, man, um, sorry, man, but there's some black shit in your eyes. Like, what's that? <laughs> he thought that he'd had like an accident with a biro or something. And Brian's like, no, no, Bill. That's, you know, my. this is how I look. <laughs> this is how I want to be fabulous. And 
they were fabulous. And I thought Nancy Boy was um, the single that had to come out. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we did that. We did that placebo episode actually. Nice. On that album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On that record. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, we can't we can't put it off any longer. Let's just talk a wee bit about uh, the big three in terms the of big, the big, the three, big that, three that didn't get it. Um, <laughs> so we we did mention, you know, I think it was uh, the likes of Rock Sound and Metal Hammer and Kerrang, yeah. all big fans of the record uh, when it came out. We thought like four out of five, so eight out of ten, so right. very respectable. We've made it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it just <laughs> bumped up against. Well, first of all, NME, I think, was the the first. Obvious dissent uh, that I was aware of. Enemy, just yeah, I, uh, complete pumps. Yeah, I, I, I don't care because <laughs> <laughs> the, you know the enemy. No one cares just, about anymore, It's just right. how fucking dare they? They do this horrendous, and everyone knows it. They build a band up and then they tear them down, and it's all pats on the back. The lads and lasses of the enemy think they're fucking hilarious because. Hey, look, everyone's talking about this piece where I totally destroyed a band of, you know, I don't really, I can't even remember their name because I'm, I was so drunk and it's so cray cray. Mm-hmm. And it was horrendous to see them just talk shit about this thing that we'd, like I've explained in case I haven't come across, we poured everything into this fucking album, like absolutely every last bit of us went into that and there's the enemy saying shit like the guitars are samey and i'm looking at an album where i can't even think of bill using the same guitar sound necessarily and bill i shit you not one top 10 british guitarists in guitarist magazine around that (laughs) time around the self-made maniac time because he's insanely fucking talented with a sound that is I think more uh, creative than Tom Morello, who everyone is like raves about. It's like, Fuck off! You need to check out Bill McQueen, <laughs> Whammy Kings. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, as I, I think I said in the show as well, if Enemy had come out and said that the guitar tones are too erratic and inconsistent, I would have probably said, "Well, okay, that's fair a matter fucks. of taste." But yeah, yeah, fair fucks, yeah. exactly. But the fact that they said they're the same is just so nonsensical. Uh, I think they also commented that the Beast was a standout track because you turned the amps down. despite the fact that it is thunderously saturated and heavy. <laughs> it has the loudest guitar solo, uh, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. I have, can't think of my notes, but there's this one bit where just, honestly, Bill rips another, rips a hole in the time-space continuum, and then this yeah. fat guitar sound comes out. It's just, like you say, I mean, if you're going to criticise anything on the album, it's not the guitars. Yeah, I have to say as well the 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 one silver lining to that is that you can look at that review and comfortably reassure yourself that this is so far off the mark. I I shouldn't necessarily take it to heart. It's not like they <laughs> yeah. they made many valid points. I, I think they made a point suggesting you were ripping off placebo, which is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, which is pretty ridiculous. And they, as I say, 
it's reassuring to know that, well, you know what, that's that's a very unpleasant review, but it's so incredibly unrelated to wh- what's actually happening mm. on this record that mm. perhaps we don't need to take it too personally. That's, yeah. I think I said, actually, it says more about the reviewer than it, it says does. about the record. It yeah, does. The yeah. problem is, if you go on Wikipedia, that's the review. Yeah. That's there. Well, the problem is as well. At the time, they were, that's they were power brokers. Yeah. They were. They were. They were. So that's history. Everyone yeah. listens to the enemy. Everyone listens to the other two cons in the room. Well, one has left mm-hmm. permanently. So one of the one of those. Um, <laughs> we'll go with Steve Lamont yeah. first. It's Why not? Steve He's alive. Not, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Steve Lamont not liking it or not necessarily not liking it. He played it a couple of he times. Did. He did. Yeah. A couple of spins. Yeah, but yeah. it's. I think with him. It's the least egregious to me because it's like, okay, he didn't like it. No. I disagree with his assessment. But, I mean, Steve Lamack was just, he played Steve Lamack stuff and some of it you were like, this is kind of pretty tedious. The one that really surprised me was John Peel. Sure. Because I thought that if Diskin did one thing, it was take chances. Sure. And that was what I always tended to associate with John Peel. I mean, John Peel played a lot of music that I thought was fucking garbage. Yep. And some of it was the most avant-garde. But I thought if anybody in radio was going to relate to the spirit of adventure on that record, it would be John Peel. Yeah. And the, the musicality was there. So the only thing really left from from his perspective is, oh, I just prefer the old sound of the band. And that's just, I get he was a big fan of like the undertones and bands like that. But John Peel was also a huge fan of fucking Mersbo. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, the guy, I, I'd never understood his his lukewarm uh, I say lukewarm his nonsense to yeah, this silence yeah his abject this silence record. it it's it's heartbreaking because like every other you know I use the word kid sparingly here but you know like, like every other fan of music God you look to John Peel for like you say he's going to play some absolute garbage and then he'll play something where you think yeah actually this is the only way I would have ever heard this. Um, yeah. He's a yeah. fan of music. He loves music. So surely he would hear people who love music making something that is for the love of music. And it just, mm. yeah, yeah, it, it uh, never happened. And it's... It, uh, never understood that one. That's the one that uh, got me the most. Because I think we all knew <laughs> that the enemy were snidey bastards. And I think we also knew that Steve Lamatt could be hit or miss. But Peel uh, not getting that record just doesn't track for me at all. I, I don't I don't understand no, it. it I, I, I can only think that we upset him. Not we, China Drum, but my previous band, Compulsion. We were really good, if that's the right word, at pissing people off um, who we thought were on a pedestal that was either too big or they shouldn't be there anyway. Uh, and I, you know, I've got to say, this is this is quite cathartic for me because mm. I've already spoken more <laughs> in this podcast than I have in all combined <laughs> previous interviews I've ever been allowed <laughs> near a microphone, <laughs> it's, especially in compulsions. Like, no way. That was the singer and the guitarist, you know, Joey and Garrett would talk from Dublin. They, you know, people from Dublin, they'd just talk. And if I interjected, they would just humiliate me live on air. So you just like, fuck me, I'll just stay out of the way. But yeah, John Peel, I think we might have, as compulsion, pissed him off so much. But then I think, oh, why the fuck would he even know who I am? In your own reality, it's something I'm really aware of. When I did send you some notes and I did email with you guys, I thought it's really hard to sound like I'm not 
just here blowing my own trumpet saying, oh, look at me, look at me. But what I really felt from your podcast is you just wanted, uh, you had questions that I could just give you the answer to. But giving that answer would make it sound a bit like, oh, well, you know, until I arrived on the scene, it was all a disaster. <laughs> it, it wasn't like that. Or, you know, they're not nice people. But still, I, w- I would go through fire for those three fuckers. They are just such wonderful people. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> I suppose um, um, the next piece, uh, I guess, is uh, about the fan base. Yeah. Uh. And their reaction to it, um, which... Obviously, with it, Chris and I are quite distantly removed from when it came yeah. out. <laughs> so, yeah. hey, I'm, mate, I, I, I'm absolutely not distantly removed from, from when it came out. I got yeah, this but, record when it know, came out. I know, but you know, from a memory <laughs> point of view. <laughs> <laughs> no, the fan base, um, my God. Like, you know, we just talked about all these cunts, and then you've got the fan base <laughs> who are so, oh, they're so nice. I mean, honestly, it struck me that because I toured a lot with my previous band compulsion and then to join China drum and promote that second album, self-made maniac, the fans were just like, they, they knew every, you know, they know each other by name. They have a rapport. They're like, there's things going on. They're like, just, just, it was like a little family. Uh, and then I knew that we would do this album and the fan base, there was absolutely no way that they were going to, Take that. It would take a miracle. It would take something I I don't think is is possible. You know, I I still listen to ACDC and go, well, you know, Bon Scott, that's it. You know what I, you know what I mean? It's like it's it's yeah. I can't deal with red hot chili peppers. I can't deal with personnel change. So I knew mm-hmm. not one while I was drumming, while Adam's out front, okay, it's still safe. It's still the same loving family. And then you give them the skin. And I just knew they wouldn't get it. And we played these gigs and we had a totally different approach. We had the song Cake off the skin was our intro music. So the place goes black and you just hear this mad weird loopy shit with some weird garbled female vocal that is dave going through a gender reassignment bit of software <laughs> and and the crowd are just like oh what the where where am i what am i doing here this is i didn't know it was you know it's like almost like the flaming lips when you want china drum and we delivered <laughs> this stuff with poor guys what and was, they what were those gigs like they, they were they were really difficult because you, I could see their faces when we played stuff off the skin. It was one look, and then we do a, always do a couple of songs where Adam would go behind the kit, with still singing, and I would just pick up a guitar so I could play enough shit guitar to do the rhythm, and we do like that. And their faces, my God, they were like, "Yeah, this is why we're here." You know, it's like I guess people who turn up to name a big act. And they won't play the hits. <laughs> yeah. And then they play the hit. And it's like everyone loses their shit. It was kind of like that. And I knew I knew what was going on. And I am so sorry. And I hope that one day they'll listen to that album and actually go, actually, listen to Adam's voice. He's never sung like that. That that 
delivery right there. That that's that's Adam, um, you know, or or Bill or Dave. That just you you hear them and they're like, for once, like in a totally, you know, Dave did so much singing. The bass player Dave McQueen did so much singing on that album to skin. In your mind. Why? Well, because Adam didn't like the song or wasn't around and we were just working it out. And then suddenly, you know, sometimes you do demoing and you, you've, you've got the thing. It's boxed in. You can see it. And the last thing you want to do is fuck around with it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dave, you know, is all over that album in a way that the fan base isn't familiar with. Dave actually does some of my favourite lines in that. You mentioned cake. I mean, that, that kind of hardcore yeah. vocal in it is fucking brilliant. Absolutely what perfect. Um, so, you know, just on this note of the fans, that we're going to go on and we're going to, to answer some of the questions that came up in the previous show, yeah. you're going to give us, a, a very kindly, a quick tour of the songs, uh, clearing up some of the ambiguity. But just before just before we get yeah. to that, just to, to close off that last point, you were going to those shows and you were bumping up against the... Lovely fans yeah. of China Drum who were really struggling to appreciate what they were being exposed to. You and I have been in the same room at least once in our lives, um, and it was King cool. Tut's in two thousand. I love that. And venue. I was and I was in that audience uh, when you went up there and played, and I was taken there by a really really good friend of mine, John, who was a fan of some of the stuff. From he was actually a really big fan of Wuthering Heights, and then he got into yeah. a little bit of self made maniac. John took me to see it, he was like, just come and see this band. I went in and I have to admit, I was fine with the earlier stuff. It was cool. Yeah. Saw bands that did that kind of stuff and China Drum were obviously far better than most, but it was the stuff off Diskin that melted my head that night. I mean, I, I just was there. You know, I love those amazing. games where you go along on faith and watching you guys do things with these songs that I was like, how did they write that? That that doesn't make as a right even at that age I was like, as a music writer I don't understand the the process that led to those bits right. being in that order and that dynamic change and things like that and I, I, I frankly love it when I meet music that I, I can't put myself in the headspace of the writer right. you, you know no matter how hard I try and I stood in that crowd as a non you know not not as an opponent of China Drummond sure, sure. but just as a, just as a neutral and became a lifelong fan. As a result, specifically of the new stuff, oh, and so nuts. I do think yeah. there is something to be said for the people that were at those shows, scattered amidst that crowd, sure. whose brain brains you were rewiring when you maybe thought, "Oh, this is, oh, these guys are really, you know, there were people in there." Because I can say that right. having been one of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here we here we are, twenty three years later, talking about it for the second podcast sure. in, in a year, and that had a real. T- 
tangible impact on me and on the way I wrote songs going forward. And I spread that album around my friends and, you know, the ripples that came from that were definitely there. We were a different audience to the audience that China Drum were maybe used to. Right. But we were an audience looking for a home that we couldn't find anywhere else. And you guys presented, you were one of very few bands that presented something that was original and troubling and problematic and exciting enough to actually connect with us in a way that, honestly, I don't know if the earlier stuff would have. I think, you know, I, I, I like a lot of China Drum. They weren't mm-hmm. up there with a life-changing act, but that record was. So, um, um, you know, just, just it's worth having that asterisk when we consider those audience reactions at the time. There were people in that room who were just agape, you know, just like, what is this? This is absolutely sensational. And so there you go. That's there was mad, one Chris. kid. That's mad. Yeah. That's, that's... It's, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm a bit of a delicate flower. That's that's knocked me back a little bit. Thank you. That's well, the whole. Like I was saying earlier, we. You know, just to know a couple of people that give a shit is makes that. It's the whole point. Can't make a no, living no. out of it, but it. It. <laughs> it, it it's, it's. There's more. Yeah, that that fills 20, my spot. 23, 23 years it took me to say thanks, but there you go. You're Actually, very, you know very what? It's, yeah, it's something just popped into my head right. as well. See, back then, did you used to give out cassettes? Did I get a cassette with HK and something else on both sides? I think right. you gave out these. Do you remember cassettes used to come in cardboard sleeves? Yeah, 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 yeah. Give That's them very out likely. Gigs. We had a lot of I promo think, stuff because yeah, it was I'm cheap. I'm pretty sure I left that night with a like a basically a two track cassette, two songs and the same two songs on both sides and a little cardboard sleeve. It's nuts. And I remember being in the car with like, what is this fucking amazing music? And taking that two those two tracks home and then obviously getting there. Well, as, lo- as long as you didn't have to pay for it. So it wasn't like a pirate copy uh, no, sort of it was a it was a promo thing that was being handed out to the crowd. Was it with was it that tour with Carrie? Which tour oh. was this? Because we had some promo stuff sometimes if we did that kind of around that time with other bands, with other labels that also had money and then you pull all your production money. Um, but yeah, I, I'll have to look for that. See if I have yeah. a cassette of that. that yeah. That's yeah, so yeah. cool. 